Bible, book by book, brings us now to the Gospel of Mark, the second book of the New Testament. And uh, I hope you have read the Gospel of Mark even uh, today. It's only 16 brief chapters long, the briefest of all the Gospels, and therefore easy to read in one sitting. Its brevity is probably the reason why this is the most often translated book of the New Testament. The Wycliffe translators, I understand, almost invariably begin their translation work with the Gospel of Mark, probably because it's so short and uh, it uh, it gets the whole story in one brief compass. But if you've read this Gospel lately, you'll have noticed that it has a completely different atmosphere from the Gospel of Matthew. And if you go on to read Luke and John, you see that they are still different from Matthew and Mark. Uh, Matthew, Mark, and Luke are more similar than they all, any of these three are compared to the Gospel of John. But nevertheless, they're all different. Now, there's a reason for this. This is designed deliberately by the Holy Spirit. We make a mistake if we think that these four Gospels are four biographies of the Lord. They're not biographies at all. They're character sketches uh, intended to be different, intended to present a different point of view. And therefore, there are four distinct views of the person of our Lord and of his work. Now, they have a specific purpose. I briefly touched upon this in an introduction to the Gospel of Matthew, But now that we're getting on into the other Gospels, it might be well to enlarge upon this a little. You know, as I pointed out last time, that the Gospel of Matthew is the Gospel of the King. It's written to present Christ as the King. The Gospel of Mark is that of his character as a servant. And we'll see reasons why that is true as we go on. The Gospel of Luke presents him as the Son of Man as man in his uh, essential humanity. And the Gospel of John presents him as the Son of God, that is, his deity. And there you find the greatest claims concerning his deity. Someone has pointed out that the very clothes that our Lord wore uh, indicate this. Uh, His robe is the mark of a king, because in those days the king wore a robe, and even today kings wear robes. Uh, the towel that he girded about himself as he washed the disciples' feet at the Lord's Supper is the mark of a servant. And the fact that his robe was seamless is a mark of his humanity, perfect, without any flaw, without any uh, any seams within it, not the joining together of two things, but a perfect, unbroken humanity. And the fact that on the Mount of Transfiguration it became a shining garment is the mark of his godhood, his deity, the glory of God uh, enshrined in a human temple so that John could write of him, we beheld his glory as of the glory of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. He came and tabernacled among us, and yet in that human tent the glory that was within shone forth. Now, It's also noteworthy, I think, that uh, uh, the recipients to whom these Gospels were written were quite different. Matthew wrote his Gospel primarily for the Jew, 
and it's filled with references and quotations to the Old Testament. And there you have the fulfillment of the sacrificial feast with which the Jews were so familiar. Uh, Mark writes his gospel for the Roman mind. And this is the gospel that has the most Latin words in it. It's the gospel of haste, of action, these characteristics of Roman. And then Luke writes for the Greek mind, the philosophical mind. And here you have our Lord's... uh, Uh, The table talk of our Lord, gathered around with his disciples, intimate fellowship. The Greeks loved this. His discourses are here. His philosophical utterances, if you like to put it in those terms. And the representation of his thoughts and wisdom as a man, written for the Greek mind. But John writes for the Christian. And therefore, this, the Gospel of John, is dearest to Christian hearts. There you have the deity of Christ emphasized. There you have the teaching of the rapture of the church, uh, first brought out in the Gospels, the hope of the church, and the intimacy of the fellowship and communion between the Lord and his own. The Holy Spirit's ministry are all emphasized in the Gospel of John. So there are four distinct purposes for writing these. And even as to his work, you find this. There are four aspects of the cross. Some of you are familiar with the teaching of the Old Testament about the feasts of Israel. They had five feasts that were specially marked out for them. And these are reflected in the Gospels. The sin offering was was one of the five offerings that Israel had to bring. And that's reflected in the Gospel of Matthew, where you have the... uh, the sacrifice of our Lord uh, in its uh, effect upon human sin, the nature of sin within. And then uh, in Mark you have that which speaks of the trespass offering, that is, the effects of sin, the manifestation of it, the deeds of men. And this is what uh, Mark emphasizes. In Luke you have what answers to the peace offering, the fact that Uh, A reconciliation is effected between God and man. He appears as the mediator, as the kinsman redeemer who brings two warring parties together, the peace offering. And in John, the burnt offering. The burnt offering to Israel was the uh, expression of utter and complete dedication, devotion, commitment to the work of God. All of the burnt offering had to be consumed, every bit of it. None was eaten by the priests. All of it speaking as a life totally given under God. And this is exemplified so beautifully, of course, in the Gospel of John, where you have the devotion of our Lord, how he pleased the Father. And all four of these speak of the meal offering, that is the perfect human uh, humanity of our Lord, sinless being that he was. Now... If you know these things about the Gospels, it will explain certain things to you that sometimes are asked about the Gospels. For instance, why is there no, no account of the, of, the, of the struggle of our Lord in Gethsemane in the Gospel of John? You find the record in, of Gethsemane's agony in Matthew and Mark, but nothing in John. Why? Well, because in there, you remember in the garden, Uh, He cried out and questioned the Father. If it be possible, let this cup pass from me. 
Now, the Son of God does not question the Father, but it's as man that he does. And therefore, the account of the garden is primarily in the Gospel of Luke. You have the fullest detail of it where he's presented as man. But in John, he's the Son of God, and therefore the account is left out. This is why the wise men are uh, uh, recorded in Matthew as coming to offer their gifts, while in Luke it's the shepherds. Now, both of them came, but Matthew tells the coming of the wise men, Luke the coming of the shepherds. Why? Well, Matthew's the gospel of the king. The wise men brought gifts fit for a king, but uh, common, ordinary shepherds, they came to see the perfect man, the one who came to be one of us, equal with us, on our level, and uh, therefore Luke records that. Why is there no account of the ascension of our Lord in Matthew? Well, because as king, he came to rule on earth. And Matthew's emphasis is upon the kingdom on earth. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Therefore, the ascension is not mentioned in Matthew. But you do find it in the other gospels. Uh, except for John. Matthew, uh, that is Mark and Luke recorded. Now, why not in John? Why no ascension in John? Well, because there he's the son of God and God is everywhere. He can't go from heaven to earth or earth to heaven. God is omnipotent, uh, omnipresent. And there's no account of the ascension in John. Uh, this is why you have a difference of emphasis in the message of John the Baptist in the Gospels. In Matthew and John, uh, his message is recorded as emphasizing the coming of the King and of the Lamb of God. And uh, this is explained by the nature of the Gospels. Why is there no genealogy of our Lord in Mark and uh, in uh, John? There is a genealogy in Matthew and one in Luke, but none in, Matthew, in Mark or John. Why? Well, kings require genealogies. You have to know where they come from, the line of descent on the royal line. And uh, a man is interested in his ancestry, but no one cares about the ancestry of a servant. And no one, and there is no ancestry to a god. Therefore, there's no genealogy in, uh, in Mark and John. Now, all of this shows then the supervision of the Holy Spirit. These Gospels, you see, are not merely copies, one based upon another, as the critics tell us, but they are designed of the Lord, especially to present the Lord Jesus. Now, that brings us to the Gospel of Mark, and I must hurry along because I don't want to get bogged down and lose this whole, the, the whole purpose of this great uh, Gospel's message to us. The author of this was a young man named John Mark. And you remember he was the young man who accompanied Paul on his first missionary journey and proved to be an unfaithful servant because he, he uh, couldn't take it and he turned back and had to go back home. And yet it's interesting that the Holy Spirit chose the, this man who was an unfaithful servant to record for us the faithfulness of the servant of God, the Lord Jesus. Now, Mark was a uh, companion of Peter. And therefore, we have in the Gospel of Mark primarily the thoughts 
and the teachings and the and the uh, viewpoint of Peter. Uh, Matthew was a disciple. Luke got his gospel from from the apostle Paul. John was a disciple, but Peter wrote nothing as far as a gospel is concerned himself. But through his son in the faith, Mark, the gospel according to Peter comes to us. And uh, you'll find that uh, in Acts, the 10th chapter, verse 38, Peter gives a very brief summary of all that is recorded for us in the gospel of, of Mark. Speaking in the home of Cornelius, remember, uh, we read this, that Peter stood among them and, and spoke to them and said, How God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power, how he went about doing good and healing all that were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. Now there's a brief summary of the whole gospel of Mark, as Mark learned it from his father in the faith, Peter. Now if you'd like to meet Mark personally, turn to the 14th chapter of this little gospel, and in verse 51 we have the only account of Mark's appearance among the disciples. Mark 14, verse 51. This is the account of the passion of our Lord as he's moving to the cross, and he's been captured by the soldiers in the Garden of Gethsemane, and uh, in the middle of the account, suddenly we read these words. A young man followed him with nothing but a linen cloth about his body, and they seized him, but he left the linen cloth and ran away naked. No other gospel tells us that. And it is almost certain that this is Mark, who was the son of a rich woman in Jerusalem. And it's very likely that his mother owned the house in which the disciples met in the upper room. And Mark, therefore, had, was present at some of these events. And almost certainly, this is an incident that he includes in here that he himself was involved in. Now, the key word of this little gospel is straightway, or immediately, uh, quickly. And this marks the, the, this is certainly the characteristic of Peter. And the whole little gospel is summed up for us in one phrase uh, about the Lord in chapter 10, verse 45. Chapter 10, verse 45. We read, for the Son of Man also came not to be served, but to serve. That's the servant. And to give his life as a ransom for many. Or as the King James has, not to be ministered unto, but to minister. And to give his life as a ransom for many. And there you have the divisions of the Gospel of Mark. There's a brief introductory section that presents the servant to us, his credentials, in the first 13 verses of chapter 1. And then following that is the ministry of, our, of the servant. He came not to be ministered unto, but to minister. And for uh, from uh, 1.14 to 8.30, chapter 8, verse 30, you have the ministry of the servant. We'll look at that in detail in just a moment. And then from 831 
On to the end of the book, you have the ransoming work of the servant. The Son of Man came not to be ministered unto, but to minister and to give his life a ransom for many. That's the work of the servant of God. In this passage, in this section now on the ministry of the servant, there is stress laid primarily upon two things. The authority of the servant, the fact that he spoke with amazing authority. Those who listened to him heard him with astonishment because they said he doesn't teach like the scribes and the Pharisees. But he speaks with authority, with power. What he says comes home to the heart. That's because, as a servant, he knew the secrets of God. And uh, he unfolds them. He takes out of the treasury of God the secrets of God and makes them known unto man. And since we are men, we hear his words with a sense of awareness that this is reality. There's a note of supreme genuineness about what he says that carries its own convicting power into the heart. And that's why the Gospels and the words of our Lord as they're read have power in themselves to convince men. Now, uh, the scribes and the Pharisees needed to bolster themselves with references to authorities and quotations from others and references to the, what the great thinkers said, but never our Lord. Have you ever noticed? He never quotes anything but the Scripture. And he always speaks uh, with the final word of authority. He never apologizes. He never says he made a mistake. He never repents. He speaks always with utter authority. You find his, uh, in this section, his authority over the powers of darkness emphasized. The demon world. Now this is Halloween. And uh, Halloween represents the awareness of the human race of the existence of a world of evil spirits. It's been distorted and twisted to become just a pantheon of goblins and spooks and witches that ride on broomsticks and a lot of other silly things. In really a basic attempt to destroy its, its uh, uh, effectiveness among men. But behind this facade of, of clownish uh, a humor is the reality of the existence of a world of demonic powers that control and affect the minds of men. Now, as you read through the Gospel of Mark, you see again and again the authority of the servant of God over the, the mysterious forces of darkness. The world of the occult was open to him. He understood it. He had power in it. Just as his power over in teaching came from his understanding of the mind and heart of men. Remember John says that uh, he spoke, that, uh, that no man needed to tell him anything about men because he knew men. He knew men. He knew what was in men. Why? Well, because he knew man. He understood what God intended when he made man. And therefore, he's the world's greatest psychologist. No one can remotely touch him because he knows us. He knows our basic structure and all that God intended and wrapped up in the human heart and life. And therefore, he analyzes so precisely. That's why his teaching comes with power. Now, he also knew the world of the occult. He knew the black powers, the dark passions that work 
behind the scenes in men's thinking and minds. Demonic powers, seducing spirits, they're called later in Paul. Doctrines of demons, seducing, that means they appear to be very alluring. They have an attraction about them. And as you read the Gospel of Mark, you'll see that uh, these demonic powers have uh, strange abilities to influence men in, in remarkable ways. Just in briefly in preparing this, I jotted down some of the ways that this Gospel reveals that the demonic forces influence men. And it's always in a negative way. They have, for instance, the power to isolate men from one another. To drive a man in madness out into the desert, in the wilderness, to live alone, to be cut off from the rest of humanity. They have the power to render him a lawless human being, with his, his fist against every other man, and his face against the world, and to be utterly lawless in his attitude. And lawlessness is a mark of demonic influence every time it appears. They have the power to make men restless unsatisfied, always looking for something more. They have the power uh, to torment men and make them torment themselves. One of the descriptions in this gospel of a demonic person is that he was beside himself. Now that's a, a significant phrase, isn't it? Imagine standing beside yourself. A split personality, in other words. A schizophrenic separated from himself and against himself. And this is one of the marks of demonic influence. And then, uh, finally, he has the power to menace, make men become a menace to society and to be against all the social structure of, this, of their day. Now, over this, our Lord had complete power, and he delivered again and again throughout this re gospel record. And then... It also reveals his power over disease. You remember, the first account of that is the healing of Peter's mother-in-law. Uh, that's always been a touching thing to me, uh, significant, that he would begin with a mother-in-law. We make so many jokes about mothers-in-law, but Peter evidently was greatly concerned about his, and our Lord touched her fever and it left her. And then all the city gathered about his door. And he healed them every one. And then the next account is that of a leper coming. And he did the unheard of thing. He not only healed him, but he touched him. Now, no one ever touched a leper in those days. The law of Moses forbade that they ever touched them. And the lepers had to go about crying, unclean, unclean. And no one would remotely think of touching a leper. But the compassion of the servant's heart is revealed as he touched him and healed him and sent him to the priest uh, as the first instance in all the scripture of a leper ever being healed according to the law of Moses and sent to the priest uh, as the law demanded. And then the next is the account of the paralyzed man, the paralytic, remember, who came in born of four. And all the way through, you have this continual underlying stream of our Lord's authority recognized. And then the Gospel of Mark catches up the attitudes of many against our Lord and towards him. 
are the attitudes that were developed as his ministry was among men developed. This is what a servant always does. He's affecting people. And as he performed this ministry, went about doing good, men developed certain attitudes toward him. In Nazareth, his own hometown, it was they were offended against him. Imagine. They didn't like what he said. They wanted him to do miracles. And he didn't do any. Rather, he spoke to them rather sharply, and they were offended against him. And uh, the next account is that of Herod the king, who was superstitiously attracted to him. He was afraid of him. And he wondered if it wasn't even John the Baptist, risen from the dead. And then it, it goes on to reveal the account of, of uh, those who, who heard the words of Christ. Chapter 6, in verse 51. Uh, his own disciples heard him, and others as he broke the bread and fed the 5,000, and then amazed them by walking on the sea. And we read, he got into the boat with them, and the wind ceased, and they were utterly astounded. For they did not understand about the loaves, but their hearts were hardened. This hardening of heart is characteristic of some of the, of the attitudes of many toward our Lord in his ministry as a servant. Then you find the, the hypocrisy and critical uh, attitude of the Pharisees that follow in chapter 7 and the acceptance then of many also at the close of chapter 7, verse 37. And they were astonished beyond measure, saying, He has done all things well. He even makes the deaf hear and the dumb speak. That's the mark of a believing heart, isn't it? One who can say of him, he does all things well. There's a very significant act recorded of our Lord in chapter 8, verse 22 through 26. Here we read, They came to Bethsaida, and some people brought to him a blind man, and begged him to touch him. And he took the blind man by the hand and led him out of the village. Why did he do that? Why did he lead him out of the village? And when he had spit on his eyes and laid his hands upon him, he asked him, Do you see anything? And he looked up and said, I see men, but they look like trees walking. Then again he laid his hands upon his eyes, and he looked intently and was restored and saw everything clearly. And he sent him away to his home, saying, Do not even enter the village. Why? Well, what village was it? Bethsaida. And remember in the Gospel of Matthew, we're told that Bethsaida was one of those cities that he pronounced a rebuke upon and said, Woe unto thee, Bethsaida, if the mighty works that had been done in thee had been done in Sodom and Gomorrah, they would have repented long ago. But here is a city that has rejected his ministry, and his person. And our Lord will not allow any further testimony to go on in that city. He led the blind man out before he healed him. And this is the only case where our Lord did not have an instantaneous, complete healing the very first time he touched him. And when the healing was complete, he would not even allow him to go back into the village. For here was a village devoted to judgment, having rejected a ministry of the servant of God. 
Now that incident ends uh, the first division of the Gospel of Mark. And beginning with chapter 8, verse 31, you see the introduction of the second theme. He came not only to, not to be ministered unto as a servant, but to minister and to give his life a ransom for many. And beginning at 831, we read, And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. And from here on, our Lord's face is set toward Jerusalem and for the cross. He's going now to be the, the, the offering of God, the sacrifice the servant who gives himself completely for the ransom of those he came to save. And uh, the revelation of his program is given in this verse. He came uh, to suffer, to be rejected, to be killed, and after three days to rise again. That's the way he's going to do it. And you remember Peter took him and rebuked him. And our Lord rebuked Peter. Peter said to him, Spare yourself, Lord. That's always the way of man, isn't it? The philosophy of the world is spare yourself. Don't take on anything you don't have to. Don't get involved. Don't do anything that's not necessary for your comfort. Don't give yourself unnecessarily to anything or anyone. Isn't that the philosophy of our age? Don't get involved. And our Lord said, Peter, I recognize where that comes from. Get behind me, Satan, for you're not on the side of God, but of man. And then he gave his program. He called to him the multitude with his disciples and said to them, If any man would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. That's the way. Spare yourself is the way of the devil. Give up yourself. That's the way of God. And this is the program now that he carries through throughout the rest of this section of Mark. You find the uh, transfiguration, the account of the transfiguration following, where he reveals his intention for man. The very first verse suggests it of chapter 9. He said to them, Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste of death before they see the kingdom of God come with power. And then he led Peter, James, and John up on the mountaintop, and they, they literally did not taste of death till they saw the, the, the king coming in glory. Peter refers to this, remember, in his letter. He says, we were with him on the holy mountain when we saw his coming and his glory. And the father spoke and said, this is my beloved son. He said, we're not telling you tales, myths. We saw it. We know it's true. And it suggests here, that this God's intention for man and the purpose of our Lord's redemptive work is that men should not taste of death. That's why he came to deliver us from the sting of death, from the awful taste of death. Now, Christians die. We're having a funeral here just in a day or two of a dear Christian beloved brother among us. Christians die, but they never taste death. Death is a doorway 
in the light. And why is it true that Christians can stand with Paul and say, O death, where is thy sting? O grave, where is thy victory? Because Hebrews tells us, he tasted death for every man. That's what he's doing here. He's on his way to the cross to taste death for every man. In order that men who receive that work should never taste death. You have his restoring work as a servant. Chapter 10, he speaks of the family, of the children. He goes into the junkyard of human life and takes these things that men have twisted, these gifts of God. Men have twisted and misused them, and he strips them of all the uh, encrustation of tradition and the uh, selfishness of men and restores them to the purpose God intended. And as you read this, you can see how beautifully he does it. Then in chapter 11, you have the beginning of the Passion Week, our Lord's last week before as he moves to the cross. And in chapter 11, verse 15 and 16, another very significant act that only Mark records is given to us. We read, they came to Jerusalem, that is, he and his disciples, and he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold and those who bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. Now, this is not the same thing, same time act as John records in his gospel. In John's gospel, this happened at the beginning of our Lord's ministry. Now, this is the end. He did this twice, once at the beginning, once at the end. But for the second time now, he throws the tables of the money changers over, cleanses the temple, and Mark says... He would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. What does that mean? Well, the only ones that carried anything through the temple were the priests. According to the Mosaic law, it was their duty to catch the blood of the sacrificed animals out on the brazen altar in the outer court and to bear that blood through the, into the holy place and in uh, before the altar, and then the whole the high priest once a year would go into the holy of holies and sprinkle that blood on the on the altar, the golden altar, uh, and of the mercy seat within the holy of holies. It was a very significant thing. Now our Lord stopped all this. He would not allow any man to carry anything through the temple. In other words, he ended the sacrifice. Now, the Jews carried them on until the destruction of the temple in 70 A.D., but without any divine authority, the sacrifices are meaningless from here on because he's standing now as the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And from this account, he moves right on out to the Mount of Olives and from there to the upper room and into the Garden of Gethsemane and on to the cross. The last uh, part of these chapters are concerned with the questions that people ask him. He's answering questions. In chapter 11, verse 27, he answers the question of the priests and the elders who come out of hatred for him and try to trap him with a question. In verse 12, chapter 12, verse 13, he answers the question of the Pharisees and the Herodians who likewise try to trap him with hypocritical questions. And he sees through their hypocrisy. 
In chapter 12, verse 18, the Sadducees come, the materialists, the ones who didn't believe in a resurrection or a spirit life, and try to trap him with a question. In verse chapter 12, verse 28, a scribe with an honest heart asks him the only honest question up to now. He came to him and said to him, which is the first commandment of all? And immediately our Lord answered him forthrightly and straight with the answer. And in chapter 13, verse 3, the disciples came with a question. And in his answer, our Lord unfolds the whole revelation of the age that would come. This is the great predictive section, closing with his return in glory. And then in chapter 14, you have two acts that show the crisis character of the servant. One, Mary, who came and offered her sacrifice of her uh, offering of, of, uh, of expensive perfume and uh, poured it out at his feet. And uh, then that of Judas, who went out and betrayed him for money. One of act of utter selflessness and the other an act of complete selfishness. And beginning with... In chapter 15, you have the account of the cross himself. This, in Mark's account, is an account of an almost incredible brutality done in the name of justice. The Lord outwardly seems to be a defeated man, a tragic failure, his cause hopelessly lost. He's hounded, bludgeoned, spat upon, as he himself said, the Son of Man shall suffer many things. And finally, he's crucified. And it seems so unlike the picture that of the wonder worker of Galilee that begins this, this epistle, this uh, letter. The mighty man of power, the servant with authority. No wonder the high priest, as they saw him hanging there, say of him, he saved others himself. He could not save. Now that's a strange statement, isn't it? Yet it's one of those remarkable words that reveal how God is able to make even his enemies praise him. Because they're both right and wrong. They were wrong in what they meant by those words. He saved others, himself he could not save. But they were perfectly right in what they said. Uh, I'm impressed here as I read this account with the three things that they could not make our Lord do. You notice them? In verse 3 and 5. They couldn't make him speak. When he stood before Pilate, it says, Pilate again asked him, Have you no answer to make? See how many charges they bring against you? But Jesus made no further answer, so that Pilate wondered. They couldn't make him speak. And they couldn't make him drink. Verse 23 in this account. They offered him wine mingled with myrrh but he would not take it. Uh, why not? Well, because he could have saved himself if he did. If he had spoken before Pilate, he could have saved himself. But you see, the high priests were right. He saved others, but himself he could not save, would not save. Had he spoken, he could have delivered himself before Pilate, but he wouldn't. Had he drunk, he could have saved himself the, the full effect of the agony of the cross and the weight of the burdens of the world coming upon his shoulders. But he wouldn't. He wouldn't spare himself. 
And in verse 37, they couldn't even make him die. We read, Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last, which is a uh, really an interpretation. What the Greek says is, he unspirited himself. He dismissed his spirit. He didn't die uh, at the hands of the murderers. He, he let his spirit go. He dismissed it. For he himself had said, no man can take my life from me. I lay it down of myself. You see, he could have refused to die. And no, they couldn't have taken it from him. They couldn't have made him die. They couldn't put him to death if he didn't want to. He said so. And he could have hung on the cross and taunted them with their inability to put him to death. But he didn't. He died. He unspirited himself. Why? Well, because he saved others. But himself he could not save. And when you come to the last chapter, the resurrection of our Lord, you get the answers. He was silent and he refused to appeal to Pilate or the crowd because he was laying the basis for a coming day when in resurrection power he would appeal to a far greater crowd when every knee should bow and every tongue should proclaim that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. He would not drink to dull his senses because he was laying the basis for the fact that even those who stood about the cross might enter into a life so wonderful so vigorous, so abundant, that even the most zestful moments of earth would be paled by comparison. And he would not let men take his life, but he voluntarily laid it down himself in order that he might overcome man's greatest enemy, death, and forever deliver all who would believe on him from the power of death and the awful sting of it. Now that's the gospel, isn't it? He saved others. Himself, he could not say. Our Father, thank you for this look again at the suffering servant, the one who came not to be ministered unto, as we so frequently demand of ourselves, but to minister and to give his life a ransom for many. May the impact of that holy, selfless sacrifice imprint itself upon our minds and hearts that we may never forget that here was one who, who saved others, but himself he could not save. In Christ's name, amen.